All right, church, my name is Kyle. Those of you watching online, in the room, in the VHQ venue, in the lobby, welcome. It's been a busy last 48 hours in the life of our church. We had our weekender. I think I've got some pictures behind you. I say this every time, or almost every time, and every time I say it, it is true. Uh, Our weekender keeps getting bigger. We had the largest in-person weekender in the history of our church this weekend. Really incredible. Yes, yes, it's okay. Yes, exciting. So here's what I mean by that. Like, um, you know, we, in September, we came back. It's like, are we still in COVID? Are we out of COVID? Are we in the new? Are we in the next? I mean, we, nobody knows. But whatever this is, we said, okay, we're going to try to do in-person. Is anyone going to come? 53 of you came in September. We said, well, should we do it next month? We used to do it every month. Let's, I mean, here's COVID. What's, what are we doing? We did it again. 74 more people came. And so let me just tell you, that, that, who is a weekender for? <laughs> a couple times people. Uh, it's for the people who are new to Christ. Uh, we had a girl, she, um, she started watching online, so we're grateful for online ministry. Uh, and in the season of our church where we had online-only services, she started watching. Then as soon as we went to Thursday night, she came in person. She comes to Christ. She's getting baptized in the next two weeks. We're very, very excited about that. That's great. Had another lady, uh, an older lady in our church. She came up to me. She said, um, she, she's not new to Christ, but, and she's not even new to our church but she had never been to a weekend. And she said, hey, it was through uh, the, the sermon on excuses. I had to deal with my own excuses. And I'm here and I'm coming and I'm not letting it hold me back. We had a young lady. She's in um, medical school. She wrote an email. Here's what, here's what she said. She said, I listened to the sermon about make excuses or make progress. That was Exodus 4. Um, God has been calling me to get into community since the fall of last year. I made excuses about how busy I was and how unpredictable my schedule at Wake Forest Medical School is. I made excuses about my family struggling with the loss of a loved one. I made excuses about my health, but I can't wait for life to not be busy and for my chronic illness to stop being a challenge because that's not going to happen. I need community more than ever. I wanna take my next step. So we're just incredibly encouraged by it. Let me tell you also, it encourages all of our ministries and invigorates all of the ministries in the life of our church. And it encourages other pastors. So this last week, we had a pastor here um, this weekend He's planting in Myrtle Beach. His name's Jeremy Woods. You, can, you need to pray for Jeremy. Please pray for Jeremy. He pulled me aside after a weekender. Very nice, godly young man. He said, thank you. Being here at this weekender has put our church two years ahead. He said, I feel like he's about to plant a church in the middle of COVID. It's hard enough to plant a church and then to plant one in the middle of COVID. He said, thank you. What we see here, this book, these resources, the way your staff's come alongside us, this has put us two years ahead. We say, praise the Lord. Our next weekender is going to be December 4th through the 6th. We are trying to get out of 2020 as quickly as possible, okay? But we have one, we have, we have one more weekender, okay, guys? So if you've not been yet, please come. This is, this is a fan favorite in the sense of we have been doing this for four years. This tends to be one of our best attended weekenders. The reason is it's right after Thanksgiving and right before the super, super, super duper craziness of uh, Christmas. And so if you will just, uh, if you've not been, sign up. Because if you want 2021 to look different, part of the way it's going to look different is you're going to be connected to community and to a group of people. So that, the first thing I want to say is kind of an internal issue I want to tell you about the weekend. Second thing, just want to talk for a moment, because we've not done this much, talk about the election. Now, you've heard this. There's an election a week from Tuesday. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, it's interesting because different churches do different things, right? And that's Okay. Some churches, it's all they talk about. Some churches, they do series this time of year, a big series, and it's cleverly titled, and, and in some ways, it's, it's, you know, it's all about the election. Well, why have we not talked more about the election? Two reasons. One's practical, one's biblical. The practical one is, I think we all feel like we need some rest, relief, and respite from hearing about it, right? Yeah. How, how many, amen, right? How, how, many, right you, how many, every time you get your mail, there's something in it? All of us. Every time you check your junk mail, it's full of it. All of us. Every time, we, both of you, every time you listen to the radio, well, just, both of you, yes. Um, it's on the radio, right? Uh, every time you go on YouTube, what's the, right? 
Anytime you go on Facebook, it's everywhere. So we want to be a place of rest, of respite. You're hearing about everything. Second reason is more of a biblical one, in the sense that we don't ultimately have a political mission. We have a gospel mission. And this election is very important. Elections are important. Ideas are important, right? Ideas have consequences. Elections have consequences. But here's the thing. Um, On the other side of this election, no matter what happens, nothing is going to change about the mission of our church. Nothing. Could things get harder? Could, I mean, all that possible. Has anything intrinsically and foundationally changed about our mission? Absolutely not. In fact, I've already voted. Yes, I did early voting. This will surprise some of you. Looked on the ballot. I was able to kind of check out the full ballot. And looked at, took my time, looked at it very slowly, went up and down. You may not know this. Jesus not on the ballot this year. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't run for election the first time. King of kings, Lord of lords. He's not running for re-election. He's ruling and reigning. And so what we want to do is we just we want to take a moment and we want to just pray. You know, here's what, and, and here, here's what, you know, people say, everyone's why, I remember, but first time I got to this city, this, I didn't tell the story in the first service. Um, first uh, married couple, so we've been long enough, um, first premarital counseling I was doing um, w- was when I first came here, because we've now been, the way that our church came, even though we're four years old, this, this is our second election as a church. Anyway, so I'm doing premarital counseling, just meet this couple, we're sitting down, they look all distraught, I said, what's going on, how's your marriage? They go, or how's your, how's your engagement? Oh, it's going fine. Pastor Kyle, who do we vote for? <laughs> That's what they were asking, That's what, that last, they just said, just tell us. They were, they were very young. It was one of the first elections they ever voted in. And, you know, and, I, and I say to them the same thing I said to you. I said, here's what Christians do. We read our Bibles, we vote our conscience, and we trust the Lord. That's what Christians have always done, in that order. We read our Bibles and know the platforms, know the parties, know, know, know where people's stances are. But we read our Bibles, we vote our conscience, we trust our Lord. Let's do that together as a church. Let's pray together and trust the Lord. Lord, we want to pray right now. We, the church has to retain its prophetic voice, speaking to culture, saying, thus saith the Lord. We have to keep our praying voice. We cannot become partisan, but must be prayerful and prophetic. Lord, we, we pray. You tell us. One of the things that's very, very clear, First Timothy 2 and other places, is that we are to pray for those in government. We pray for President Trump. We pray for Governor Roy Cooper. We pray for our senators, Tom Tillis. Richard Burr. Lord, we pray for our mayor. Alan joins. Lord, we ask that you would give these men wisdom as they lead us in this season. Lord, we ask that we would be humble and respect any leaders that you put over us, Lord. And we would pray for them and we would speak the truth. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, you can type to, turn to Exodus 11 and 12. Okay, so what we're doing, I mean, welcome. If you're new, we're walking through a big book of the Bible. We're taking it, it's like, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Okay, that's the answer. So we're, we're trying to take this big, big book, and we're not going to be able to get fully through it, but we're getting some through it. And we've been talking about the plague. So, so turn to chapter 11, verse 1. And here, this will kind of be our intro as we look at what we're talking about today. 11, verse 1. It says this, The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague. That means there's been nine already. Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. So a couple things. There's been nine plagues so far. Let me say a few things about that. It looks like so far Moses has been a failure and God has been a failure at one level of analysis. It's like weeks and weeks and weeks of plagues and no difference in people's lives, it appears. And you're gonna feel this sometimes, right? You're gonna feel like, all right, God, you called me to be faithful and I'm not seeing a lot of fruit. And just so you know, the first time, it's gonna take a while for things to work sometimes. Even when God tells you to do them, you're not gonna get to see the results right away. Moses didn't. It's like, guess what happens if you try to lead your family in devotions? It doesn't go well. 
usually for the first five or 10 or 15 times you try to do it. It's like, well, keep going, keep being faithful, God will bring the fruit. What happens the first time after a long time you haven't initiated you know, to your spouse to have like a real relationship and really talk and maybe pray together and talk about spiritual things? How's it gonna go when you first try to do it? Not well. How's it gonna go when the first time you share the gospel with your you know, non-Christian friend who you know you've needed to share with for a while? How's, how's that gonna go usually? Not well. Probably. There's gonna be conflict. It's gonna be difficult. You're gonna feel like a failure. God's gonna say, be faithful. What we see with Moses is there's nine plagues so far. Let me remind you what the purpose of these plagues are. There's a couple purposes, right? God's always doing like a million things. But here's one of the purposes, uh, to show the power and personality of God. How do you know what God's like? What is the glory of God, right? People talk about it all the time, like the glory of God. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is when an attribute of God or a characteristic of God goes public so we can see it. So what we see in the plagues is the character of God gone public. Oh, God gets angry. Oh, God makes distinctions between his people and other people. That's the first thing. The second thing is to remind us of how terrible our sin is, right? It's like, how terrible is sin? Let me tell you how terrible sin is. As bad as boils all over your body, that's how painful and ugly sin is. It's like, well, you don't normally think that way. How terrible it is, is it to live in spiritual blindness and darkness? As terrible as it is to not be able to see for three days with the darkness. How destructive is sin? It's like, because we tend to think I'm not, you know, I'm a mistaker and I'm an, I have accidents and I have indiscretions and I struggle and occasionally I fall into sin. That's how we talk about it. God says, actually, no, what sin is terrible, it's horrible, and it destroys things, and we see that with the hail, and that sin's always connected to death. We see that with the livestock. And the third thing is God attacks our idols lovingly, right? Some of you, if you made that much money or had that relationship or got that career, it would actually be the thing that would destroy you. It would confirm you in your narcissism and your worldliness. It would not be good for you. And so God graciously doesn't give us those things. So that, that's, the, that's the first nine plagues. Now, everything changes with the 10th plague. Let's talk about the 10th plague. There's still a lot to say today. So try to, try to think with me about this. The 10th plague is different on multiple levels. First of all, it's super long. So the 10th plague, its implications, applications, is longer than all the other nine plagues. So chapter 11, we'll get there. We're reading the first verse. It's all a big warning. Chapter 12, one of the longest chapters in all of Exodus, it's 51 verses. Um, it's the whole plague. Uh, chapter 13, um, hey, remember the plague. Uh, chapter 14, um, leave and go through the Red Sea because of the plague. Chapter 15, sing a song about the plague. So you're talking about, you know, about five chapters completely devoted to this plague. That's the first thing that's unique. Second, Moses is not involved. He doesn't get to throw dust in the air. He doesn't get to throw his staff on the ground. He doesn't get to, you know, hit his staff down. He's not involved. This is the only plague God says, I'll take this one by myself. I will fully come down and I will fully do this myself. Here's the third thing. It becomes the center of worship for Israel going forward, which is interesting because part of what we're gonna see today, and we're gonna slow down and I'm gonna try to draw all these connections is you're gonna see the connection between the Passover and the cross of Christ in Christianity. Because here's what God's gonna say. Hey, everything's gonna change today and you are now going to relate to me based on the innocent sacrifice that will be a substitute for you. That's how you relate to me from now on. It's profound. It's foreshadowing what's going to happen in Christ. And so it becomes the center of their faith. In fact, I want you to see this. Turn with me to verse two. Verse two says this. Speak now. So there's an urgency to this. Get this message out. Speak now in the hearing of the people. 
that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. So this is kind of the first sign of hope. They're, they're getting some things. They, they've been enslaved the whole time. Finally, they're, they're actually getting some kind of recompense and reward. Uh, verse three, and the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So here's what happens. This is a great reminder, right? So sometimes you're gonna live a godly life and you're gonna have integrity and you're gonna speak the word of God and you're just gonna be persecuted for it. And people aren't gonna like it, right? The Bible says all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will, do you guys know how it finishes? Be persecuted, it's a promise. It's not one of the promises that people normally put on a bumper sticker or on their, <laughs> on their fridge, but that's a promise from scripture to you and to every Christian. Um, but other times, and we see both of this in scripture, other times you'll live a godly life, you'll have integrity, you'll live with conviction, You'll speak the word of God and people will respect you for it. And that's actually what we see here, that he was consistent. This has been weeks and weeks and weeks of Moses going, this is what God says, this is what God's gonna do. I told you, then God did it. Now Pharaoh's not listening, but this is what I said. And so the people, they respect, they deeply respect Moses. Well, this leads to a big warning. So in verses four through 10, if you write in your Bible, you can, you can write this, but it's a big warning. Verses four through verses 10 is a massive warning of what God's going to do and what we need to do. Now, do we, in America, don't we have warnings on everything, right? We have warnings on everything. Sometimes they're so obvious, it's like, don't drop this on your head. You're like, okay, I'll try not to. Uh, or it'll be, it'll be like the most obvious warning ever. Uh, but a lot, a lot of warnings we don't even listen to, right? Like, do you know you're not supposed to put Q-tips in your ears? I mean, that's, if you actually get the box, it says, don't put these in your ears. It's like, that's what Q-tips are for, <laughs> I think. You know, do you know that you're not supposed to use the popcorn button when you put popcorn in? And read it. It tells you not to do it. I guess it's not good. Cook it too short. Cook it too long. It's like, what? You know, um, do you know you're not supposed to eat cookie dough raw? Yeah, some of you are. Yeah, yeah. But that tastes, that tastes really good. No, I just, I just we, right, we, or, or sometimes we don't listen to warnings because it's like, we don't really believe them. Like, okay, I lived in a freshman dorm for multiple years because I was doing ministry in college. And when you live in a freshman dorm for multiple years, you just realize the alarm is going to get pulled and it's not really a fire. And so by like the fourth or fifth time you come that, you just, you hide under, you know, you put your pillow over your head and you just go back to sleep, you know, in your dorm because you don't even believe it's real anymore. Well, I want you to hear this warning because these warnings are serious. And I want you to see what God says. He gives us a real warning. Um, look at me at verse four. So Moses said, thus says the Lord about midnight, I, again, remember Moses isn't gonna be involved. I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who would be the most powerful person, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. So I want to talk about this because what he says is, um, I'm gonna, he gives two examples, basically. He says the firstborn of Pharaoh and the firstborn of a handmaiden, behind, um, or the, of servant girl, behind the, behind the handmill. And you go, well, why would he do that? He's like, he's trying to say every person is going to be under the judgment of God. Sometimes people think, I won't get judged because I'm a guy. Nope, you will. I won't get judged because I'm a girl. Nope, you will. I won't get judged because I'm rich. Nope, you'll still get judged. I won't get judged because I'm poor. Nope, you'll still get judged. I won't get judged because I've suffered. People think that all the time. I've had a hard life, so God's not gonna judge me. No, he's still going to judge you. And so actually what we see here is God's like, hey, every person's gonna get judged and the judgment is going to be the death of a firstborn. And you go, what that, what's that about? Well, think with me for a second because it's, it's kind of deep. A couple things. God is basically saying, God practices what the Bible calls and theologians call retributive justice. It's I pay you back in accordance with your sin and you get exactly what you deserve. 
So like, I remember, again, I tell stories from my time at Duke because it was such an interesting time, but I remember meeting with this guy who was way too educated for himself, and, and he was, a, he was a, stu- a senior there, like a philosophy major or something like that. So we're walking, and he said, he said, he found out I was a Christian and stuff, and I was leading a Bible study in his fraternity, and he said, now, tell me this. How can a sin committed in a finite period of time receive a punishment that would be infinite? It's like, well, dude, that's such an old question. I mean, but, but the, the, what he's asking is, how can, how can something that I do for three or four or five or seven decades, how can I sin in time and be punished for eternity? It's a deep, I mean, it's a helpful question. And basically, the, you know, the, the answer to that is it's actually who your sin is against. When your sin is against an infinite God, the punishment is infinite in nature. There's a small picture of this here where God says, look, you, what you have done is you've attacked my firstborn. Okay? He calls Israel, God calls Israel his firstborn. And he says, you attacked it. Not only that, you wanted all the firstborns to be thrown into the water. I'm going to pay your sins back on you. You're going to suffer in the same way. Part of it also is the firstborn, it represented hope, it represented the future. So like what we do, so say someone has five kids, okay? And say the parents die. Guess what happens to the 100% of money that the parents have? It's usually split up, 20%, 20%, 20%, 20%, 20%, right? Unless you don't like one of your kids. But I mean, usually it's like, all right, I've got this much and I'm gonna split up. That's not how it works in the Bible. And, and, and for the firstborn, because the priority was to keep the family name going, to keep the family legacy going, to keep the family business going, you gave almost all of your money just to your firstborn. It's like he gets 90%, 95%. The other five to 10% is split between the other 10 to 12 kids that you would have had. And so this, it was the, the firstborn was the whole idea of hope. It was the whole idea of the future. Now it's interesting because even firstborns, you know, they, they've sociologists, psychologists, they love to study twins because that's interesting. They also love to study firstborns. And it's interesting because firstborns are 30% more likely to become CEOs or go to, into politics. Um, firstborns are more likely to go to school, stay in school, get a good job, make a lot of money. And people, we don't know all the reasons why, but it's interesting, they say this. Firstborns tend to get a taste for power at a very young age with their little siblings. <laughs> and they like it. And it's interesting because, and firstborns tend to have, like, you know, if you're a firstborn, you tend to have love lavished on you from your parents, right? Like nobody has pictures of their like fourth kid's first birthday. Like, yeah, he had it, I promise. You know, it's like, we tend to like, we love all our kids the same, but we tend to like take this extra lavishing on our first kid. And they say, it's the lavishing of love on the first. This is what they think. Plus, on top of that, why don't we uh, give them a bunch of siblings and then tell them they should be an example? So it's like, okay, be an example. And then also, as they get even a little older, enforce the rules. So lavish me on love. Lavish on me love. Let me be an enforcer and example. Amen. And what you see is you see, so you see this kind of strong strength of a lot of um, the firstborns. Well, he says, I'm going to judge the firstborn. I want you to see what he says next. Look at me at verse six. <clears throat> it says this. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt. Such there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall howl, or sorry, shall growl, against any of the people of Israel. So what he's saying is, there's gonna be so little that happens in Israel that even dogs who tend to be alerted by little things, they're not even gonna wake up. That's how peaceful it's gonna be. Any of the people, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. 
Verse 8, and all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of the land. So this is the final time where Pharaoh gets a warning and he does not listen. And it's a big reminder to us. We talked a little bit about this last week, but I want to talk about it more right now. Is it's a reminder to us about the power and the importance of warnings. Warnings show up very, very early in scripture. I mean, warnings are, think about it. Warnings show up in Genesis chapter two. When he says, you know, don't eat of this tree and eat of this tree. It's like, think about that. Perfect people, sinless people, Adam and Eve, in a perfect environment need to be warned. How much more do we need to be warned? (laughs) Then Cain and Abel, things happen with them, right? And God warns Cain, hey, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It's desirous for you. You must rule over it. There's all these warnings in scripture. We're warned of the danger of isolation. We're warned of the danger of temptation. We're warned of what happens with unbelief and a hardening heart. We're warned of all these different things. So there's two places we're warned, actually. We're warned in scripture. That's everywhere we can see that. Um, The second place we're warned is in the failure of other people's lives. That's actually what the Bible says itself. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, hey, I want you to know all the things that Israel did in the wilderness. And he says, well, it tells them all the sinful things they did and how God punished them for it. And he goes, these things are written down for your instruction. And it's really interesting because I've experienced this. I've told parts of the story before, but years and years ago, over a decade ago, um, I had a friend named Matt and Matt was on our staff team doing college ministry with us. And one day, Matt disappeared. We thought someone took him, maybe. Uh, we didn't know what happened. Matt just was gone. And I, I, can't, I don't have time to go into all the details of the whole story, but what we found out that happened is um, Matt had let sin get a hold of his life, so much so that he had such a, a desire for sin. He was in full-time ministry, but he had let an area of sin grow into his life to where he went, you can't even make this up, he went and found all his old baseball cards, and went and took them to a baseball shop, we found all this out later, so that he could sell them, so that he could get cash, so that we couldn't trace him. And then he moved to Asheville to live out an alternative lifestyle and to be sexually deviant. It took us about a week or 10 days to actually, it's a long story, to find out all this. You can imagine, we're all young, young Christian brothers and sisters, we're all working in the ministry, we're all raising our support, we're all trying to do, we're all like, what's going on? So we call our pastor. We were all part of a large church at the time and the pastor was right about to be retired. So he was 68 years old. He was just a man's man, pastor his whole life. We get him on the phone. He kind of knows what's going on. We tell him the whole story. And he said, guys, what's happened to Matt has served as a warning to all of us. This is where sin leads. And the quietness of the room, because you just realize this is it. He lost his job. He doesn't, want to, he doesn't want to have a relationship with us anymore. He cut off all communication. His mom couldn't get out of bed for a week. This is where sin leads. This is that road that when we say sin, you know, costs you more than you want to, you know, pay and charges you, keeps you longer than you want to stay and all, all that kind of, but that's what we're talking about here. And so what's happened is the church has forgotten its warning ministry. Part of what we do, and we don't want to do this because we don't want to sound like fire and brimstone, and we don't want to be scary to people, and I get all that. 
But we've forgotten the warning ministry of the church because the gospel comes in both promise and threat. Or you could say promise and promise, but good promises, not good promises, okay? Here's what I mean. Like, here's promise. Hey, whomsoever believes can have eternal life. And everyone says amen. You know, you can be forgiven. Your sins can be forgiven. Your soul can be cleansed. Your eternity can be secure. You can have a relationship with the living God. You need to repent and believe. It's like, well, that's half the gospel. The other half of the gospel is, if you do not repent, you will die in your sins. And you will stand before God naked, alone, and bare to give an account for everything that you've done in the body, whether good or evil. You don't get to die and stand in front of a mirror and give an account to yourself about yourself. You give an account to God. And apart from Christ, you will only face judgment and wrath. You will be cast into the lake of fire where you will experience eternal, irreversible, conscious torment forever. It's like, well, no one wants to talk like that. Of course not. But it's only when you realize, the gospel is only sweet when you realize what you've been saved from. The gospel is so sweet to the Israelites because they're gonna see what the alternative was with the Egyptians because by the end of this, every home's got someone dead. Neither a firstborn or a lamb, that's it. And so we have to heed the warnings of scripture. Chapter 11 is a warning. Chapter 12 is the Passover. Let's look at chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse one. He gets very practical. God is very practical. I'm gonna help you live these things out. Here's what he says. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month, this is amazing. So the beginning of the Passover, he's saying this. This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. In other words, God's like this. Look, what I'm gonna do is so significant. It's not just a second chance because you don't need a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance and a fifth chance. You need to fully start over. That's what we're gonna do. We're gonna fully start over. You're gonna get a whole new year. We're redoing the whole calendar. It's like, man, what God does is so profound, it changes the most basic things about you. Because if there's like one thing you know, it's like your calendar. You're like, no, no, I know what January is. I know what February. It's like what we teach little kids, right? It's like one of the most basic things. It's like learn one to 10 and learn January through December. It's like, it's so basic. God's saying, no, no, I'm actually in the business of changing and reorienting and reshaping the most fundamental things about your life. And so he says, hey, you're actually gonna, this is, I'm gonna give you a sign on the calendar you're gonna put me first. But do you know that holidays, we always forget these words, holidays means holy days. Well, I mean, they're not anymore, but that's what they meant. So, so, so it's interesting because we don't really, every day is like kind of some goofy, unique day. Like I, I looked it up. Do you know what today is? National Greasy Food Day. <laughs> True story. It's also National Mother-in-Law's Day. None of you knew that. I know, you need to call your mother-in-law. But, but it's like, you know, it's like this is, and you see that, right? Because every once in a while you'll go on Instagram, you're like, it's National Daughter's Day? I didn't know this. Quick, let's get a picture, you know? Let's find a picture. It's like, I mean, you know, it, it's like it's too overwhelming because everybody's got something all the time. But, but what God's saying is, hey, look, you need to, re here's what he's saying, and this is really powerful. And we say this all the time here. Christianity will not be real until it touches your budget and your calendar, it's like, you know, how, does, how is it real? It's, it's not real until it makes your, makes your calendar. Until it's like, no, worship is a part of our weekly calendar. Weekly worship, is, it's on the schedule. I mean, yeah, if we're in, if we're in town, we're in church. We're, we're not, we don't just miss because it's part of the life cycle of our family and of our church. It was interesting this last week, you know, I'm in a community group. We were talking with my community group and we were saying, 
We're talking about like, how do you apply the word? Which is, how do you apply the Bible to your life? And I was, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised, but about three or four of the people said the number one thing that helps me apply the word to my life is knowing I have this group every week. They just said, just knowing that I'm gonna show up and I'm gonna talk about it, I'm gonna have to answer questions and I'm gonna be asked what I learned and I'm gonna be asked how I'm living it out. Just this on my weekly calendar changes things. And so he's saying, first thing is, this is going to have to reshape your calendar, and Christianity has to touch your budget, your calendar. Here's the second thing he says. Look at verse three. Verse three says this. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, and by the way, that's Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus comes into Jerusalem is the very same day they say, go get the lamb and bring him in for inspection. You're gonna see all of these parallels and foreshadows. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of the month, Palm Sunday, every man shall take a lamb according to, the, to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And they estimate that a lamb would feed about 10 people. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Did you notice that it went from a lamb to the lamb? Right? This is going to be how it works with Christ, right? We think Christ is just a teacher or a good person or a option. And then eventually we realize, no, he's the lamb. But then look what happens in verse 5. This is so important. Your lamb. Christ has to become personal. Your lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. So he starts to say, you need a lamb and it needs to be perfect. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now, here's what's interesting. This is, this is the foreshadowing that the life of Christ would be as important as his death. Have you ever wondered why after the baptism of Jesus, he goes into the wilderness? Think about this with me. He goes through water into the wilderness. That's what Israel did. Israel went through the Red Sea into the wilderness. Why does Jesus have to do the same thing? Because Israel failed in the wilderness. If you look back, the temptations that Jesus faces in the wilderness are the same temptations, bread. What's that about? Manna, not grumbling. Jesus goes and he obeys in our place all of the areas we have failed and Israel has failed. Why? So if if the 10th day is Palm Sunday, have you ever wondered, if you ever read the gospels, the last week of Jesus' life is the worst week of his life because everybody's questioning him. What are they doing? They're inspecting the lamb. It's the symbolic inspection of the lamb. Why is he standing before courts and judges and everybody's inspecting the lamb to find and see if it's without blemish? So I want you to see what happens next. Look at verse six. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. When was Jesus killed? At twilight. It's interesting here. It says that you're going to get the lamb on the 10th day, and then you're going to kill the lamb on the 14th day. What's, it's like, so I have them for the 10th, the 11th, the 12th, the 13th, the 14th. That's five full days. And you go, well, why did you have to keep the lamb for five days? Why don't you just get the lamb and kill the lamb? That was what makes sense. Like, just do this real quickly, right? Two reasons. One, it was to say, we want you to personally inspect the lamb yourself. And there's a type of inspection maybe that can only happen if you live with the lamb. We, this lamb needs to be perfect. Secondly, we all know what happens if you have a lamb in your house for five days, right? Your kids say, can we name it, right? 
Your kids argue over who gets to sleep, who the lamb sleeps in their room tonight, right? I mean, that's kind of how that works. And, and, but on a serious note, most people think the reason that you had to have this lamb for four or five days is so that you would get attached to it. I mean, would it be a sacrifice otherwise? The, the whole idea, we, now this is almost impossible, literally almost impossible for us to believe, or understand, I mean, um, because we don't do anything that requires this type of seriousness in our lives today. But if you realize that what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna get close to this animal for four or five days and then I'm going to slit its throat. And my kids are probably gonna ask me not to do it. Maybe my wife will ask me not to do it. But we'll have to stop and say, no, no, you gotta understand, this is actually how terrible sin is. Sin is so terrible, I'm gonna have to kill this thing. And thank God it's not another human. And this is what God has said, and I don't fully understand it. But we're going to, we're going, this, this animal has to die. It doesn't get to just live. The life of the animal doesn't save us. The death of the animal is actually what's gonna save us. And what, what he begins to teach us is this, this what's, what they call the, doc, I'm giving you a lot of doctrine today. Doctrine just means teaching. It's the doctrine of substitution. See, the heart of sin is substitution and the heart of salvation is substitution. Let me explain that. The heart of sin is substitution. I want to be God instead of him. That's the definition of sin. I don't think God's doing a great job. I don't think God's right on this issue. I don't wanna listen to what he says. I don't wanna believe what he says. And instead, I'm going to substitute myself for God and do what I want. That's the heart of sin. The heart of salvation is God substitutes himself for us. I will, I will live the life you cannot live. I will die and pay the penalty and payment and punishment for your sin. All of this is communicated with the lamb. I want you to see what happens next. <clears throat> Verse seven, then they shall take some of the blood. So it gets even more gross and graphic in some ways, let's just be honest. It almost feels primitive, it almost feels like a Halloween movie, it feels like a Stephen King novel. I mean, it's graphic. They, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. So now we've moved on to talk about blood, which, which again, what is blood all about? We know this, blood is about death, right? If you walked into your house and there was a massive amount of blood on the floor, you're like, this is not a, this is not a good sign. I don't think good things happened here because blood is a reminder of death. Now what's interesting is he says, he says this, this was another great picture of the gospel. He says, it's not enough for the sacrifice. It's not enough just for the lamb to be sacrificed. It must be applied by faith. I must, have an, I must actually do something with the sacrifice. Now I want you to see this. Look what happens in verse, uh, if you go down to verse 22, because he repeats this story multiple times. I want you to see what he says to do. He says this, take a bunch of hyssop, which was a very, very weak plant. Okay, in other words, it's not about, it's not about your faith, it's what your faith is in. It's not how strong your faith is, it's what your faith is in. He says, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. So what he's saying is, here's what you do. A lamb will be sacrificed. You will take its blood and you will put it over the door as a sign. It's gonna be a sign to your neighbors and it's gonna be a sign to God. Now this is interesting because do we not live in a time where people are putting a couple signs in their yard? Right, some of these signs you would get in a car accident if you tried to read them. I mean, they are so long, right? But it's interesting, they've done the research. The research is in. The signs make zero difference in people's yards. In people, I mean, it makes zero difference of an outcome. What is it about? 
Well, we don't really even know. It's, it's usually about either upsetting your neighbor <laughs> or feeling connected to your neighbor. That's normally what it's about. But it, or it's about community. And some people genuinely believe these things and they're excited about these things and they're endorsing these things. And, and then many people go, I think this is what you want me to believe. I think this is the right side of history. What's interesting is no one puts a sign out that says, I'm a sinner. Would you, we need the grace of God in this house. Will you pray for us as we try to love our enemies? I mean, there would be accidents everywhere if that sign was in the. We wouldn't even know what to do with that. Well, but it's interesting because what he's saying is when you put the blood on your door, you're going, okay, I'm a sinner. I deserve to die. Somebody else has paid the punishment for me. And what I'm doing is I'm resting under the blood. Now, Don Carson, who's a, both a former pastor and a, and a theologian, he tells the story of two Jewish men. It's a fictional story, but it's, it, it proves the point. He says, imagine these two Jewish men. And we'll just call them, we'll give them good Jewish names, Bob and Tim, okay? Um, but Bob and Tim, I mean, you know, and, and, uh, and so basically Bob and Tim, they're, they're, um, they, they, they both are Jews, they hear the Passover. He says, and Bob's real strong and says, that's it, we're, we're putting the blood on the door and this is definitely gonna work, I got no doubts. I'm super, I'm, I'm just trusting the Lord. God said he's gonna do what he's doing. He said, I'm putting it on the door and I'm going to bed and sleep like a baby night. And Tim says, well, I believe, but I got some questions. And I'm kind of scared and I don't understand how exactly this is gonna work. But I'm gonna trust the Lord and I'm gonna believe the word of God and I'm gonna put it over my door. But I got questions. And that guy struggled to sleep that night. And Don Carson says, who did the Lord pass over? And he says, both of them. The Lord forgave both of them. The Lord did not bring judgment to both of them because it's not about the strength of your faith, it's what your faith is ultimately in. And just a very helpful word just to remind us that we are to rest under the blood of the lamb. Now there's more to it. So that's what happens on the outside. On the inside, there's a meal. On the outside, you put the blood. On the inside, you have a meal. I want you to see what happens next. Look at verse eight. Verse eight says this. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire. The reason you didn't boil it, but you roasted it is so none of the bones would be broken. Also, guess what? Christ's bones were not broken on the cross. All these are illusions and pictures of the gospel. And you should eat it with unleavened bread. Unleavened bread. That's bread with no leaven or no yeast. Okay? The reason is, well, let me, I'll tell you that in a second. And with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. So he gives us two things. First, he says, the unleavened bread. Here's what that means. Uh, leaven in... in um, in, in the Bible, leaven is always connected to sin. And I know all you gluten-free people are like, amen. No, that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> not like that. What it means is le leaven or yeast is small, it spreads quickly, and it makes things puff up. And so Paul used it to say that's what sin does. It spreads quickly, and it puffs us up, and it makes us prideful. This is what sin does to us. So it's kind of an image of that. Part of the image also is, hey, we gotta move quickly. We're leaving Egypt. We don't have time for bread to rise. Part of it was the sinful thing about it. To say, hey, we need to not have sin in our lives. The other thing that happens is the bitter herbs. It says there's these bitter herbs. Now, in the Hebrew, it's very clear, it's kale. No, I'm kidding, it's not kale. But, but the, whole idea, the whole idea there is that you would eat something bitter and it would remind you of your sinfulness and it would remind you of your slavery. See, God, we, we've lost a lot of these things. But God gave us all these symbols because what's gonna happen to people is they're going to leave, and this is what we all do, and they're gonna look back on their life in Egypt, their life before Christ, and there's gonna be times they're gonna look back on it and go, I think my life might have been better then. I kind of miss it. 
or I miss some of the sin that I used to enjoy back then. And so he would eat, have them eat this meal with bitter herbs to remind us, no, you, sin was terrible. In fact, Christ will not be sweet to you until you realize that how terrible sin is. So he gives them this meal. I want you to see what happens next. Look at verse 10. It says this in verses 10 and 11. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it. Now, this is interesting. Now he's telling them how to eat it. With your belt fastened. That's like you're ready to work and you're ready to move. And your sandals on your feet. And your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. I love this, right? I love it says to eat, and eat it in haste because I don't know anyone who eats as quickly as me, okay? <laughs> um, but it's interesting because what, what the Jews would do is the Jews would normally take their time at a meal. They would eat very slow. They would lounge very much. And what he's saying is, hey, actually this meal, and this is a great picture of the gospel, this meal saves you, but it's not just for you to sit in and think about and do nothing with. You're actually already going to have to. I'm saving you from something, sin. I'm saving you for something, mission. So it's so interesting. But if you read carefully chapter 12 and chapter 11 and other places, God basically says before the Passover, you're unable to leave Egypt. And then he's going to say, as soon as the Passover happens, you're going to be unable to stay. And you actually see as the story goes on, the people go, get out of here. Which is exactly what happens. So someone comes to Christ, you go, that's it. I can't be living in my sin anymore. Sometimes I need a whole new community or at least I need some new best friends. I need some new habits. I need, I, everything in my life needs to change. And it all starts, he says, with a family meal. Now, this is so amazing. So you see how practical it is. God's saying, okay, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to change your calendar. Christian needs to meet your calendar and your budget. And it's all going to start on a family meal, which is so interesting because, right, a church or a nation is only as strong as its families. And the family meal, they, they say there are, key, there are habits. I've taught you this, guys, before, but there's, there's habits and keystone habits. Habits are good. Keystone habits are amazing. A keystone habit is, if you can only have one habit, have it, right? So a keystone, like the number one individual keystone habit is work out early in the morning. If you do that, they've proven that you'll eat healthier and you'll feel better and you'll sleep more and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, that's the number one individual keystone habit. The number one family keystone habit is a family meal. We don't know how it works, okay? We don't know if it's always chicken or egg, but if you will regularly eat a meal together in your home, everybody sits down, everybody talks, that... Anxiety and depression go down in the home. Grade point average goes up. Sexual purity stays strong in the home. It's unbelievable all the things, and God knew this, all the things that were gonna be connected to a family meal that was meaningful. And so he gives this picture. He says, I want you to have this family meal. And then look at verse 12. He says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And then here's the blood again. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will, and here's where we get the phrase from, I will pass over. Right? Sometimes being passed over is a bad thing. Right? You're passed over for a job. You're passed over and you know, he asked somebody else out. We don't like being passed over. There are other times it's very good to be passed over because God judged somebody else instead of us. That's what this is talking about. He says this, I will pass over you 
and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Verse 14, this day shall be for you a memorial and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. And we'll look at more at this, more at this next time, but the uniqueness of exactly what happens in the first Passover, that, that actually event never happens again. It's never to be repeated, but forever it is to be remembered. And so the rest of chapter 12, which we don't have a lot of time to get into, he basically says, you should live in such a way that your kids ask you why you're doing something, Christian in nature, and you have an answer for it. Now, wouldn't that be powerful? Both of those things, that we would live in such a way that our children would ask us, why do you, why do I see you with a Bible on your lap every morning? Why, do, why is church a priority for our family? Why do you and mom pray before dinner? We don't, don't know, and, and, you, and you have an answer. And he's saying that, that's what begins to shape a family, that's what begins to shape a home, that's what begins to shape a city, that's what begins to, or church, that's what begins to change the culture. And look how he ends. I want you to drop down to verse 23. Here's the event itself. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statue for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but he spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. See, what we begin to see, we get another big picture of the role of the lamb in the history of the church. See, what most, we don't know for sure. Most people think when Adam and Eve sinned that what God covered them with were lamb skins. So back then you had one lamb for one person. And then when you get to Exodus chapter 12, God says, all right, here's what it's gonna be. It's gonna be one lamb for every family. So there's gonna be a lamb and what happens to that lamb is gonna be able to cover an entire family. You go, well, that's amazing. Well, by the time you get to Leviticus, in the day of atonement, which is called Yom Kippur, God says, it's one lamb for an entire nation. You go, okay, so there's one lamb for one person, then a lamb for a family, then a lamb for a nation. And if you remember the story of Abraham with Isaac, he's going up to sacrifice his son and Isaac says, we have the wood and we have the fire, dad. Where's the lamb? And God said, God's gonna provide the lamb. Or Abraham said, God's gonna provide the lamb. And then in John chapter one, John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, that's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus comes and we've talked about it. We've talked about it, the the whole message and the whole text, so I don't have a ton more to say except that Jesus Christ comes and he is the perfect, sinless, unblemished lamb of God who lives the life we could not live and dies the death we deserve to die. In fact, Jesus, he earnestly desires to share the Passover, he says, with his disciples. In Luke 22, he says to his disciples, guys, go get the Passover ready. So they get the Passover ready, and they think that they're gonna have the meal that we just had. That's what they get ready. They get ready, and then they get up in the room, and Jesus gets up there, and he says, take your shoes off. Well, well, it says you leave your sandals on when you eat the Passover. He says, take them off, I'm gonna wash your feet. This is different. We're not doing the bitter herbs. 
We do have the bread, but we're not, we're not doing the bitter herbs. Instead, we're, we're taking the bread and we're taking the wine. And he gives a complete new, new meaning. He says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. And there's no lamb. Well, there's no immediate lamb cooked at the table. It's because Jesus Christ himself would be the lamb. And we don't look to blood over doorposts. We look to a blood on the cross. And what we're going to do right now, you got it when you came in, was, was the, the juice and the, and the bread. And I want you to think about this for a moment. This is, by the way, if you're, if you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here. We'd ask you to take Christ instead of taking communion. But this is for believers. And let me just tell you something very interesting about communion. You know, we use all this. We, we've gotten rid of a lot of the old language. But the old language used to be partake. Hey, we're going to partake in communion. And that was very, very intentional because, you know, we don't pass the elements out and say, look at them. I mean, that's not a bad thing to do. Look at that. You know, you, we don't just say, think about them. Here they are. Think about them. It's like, no, we actually say, here's what I want you to do. I need you to consume it. It needs to go inside of you and become part of you and nourish you. That's exactly what Christ does. When you take this communion, you say, I need to feast on Christ. As they feasted on the lamb, so we feast on Christ. That's what we do here every Sunday. That's what we do during every community group. We say, come together, let's feast on Christ together. I'm gonna pray for us, then you'll take the communion or you can take it now if you'd like, and the band will sing over us afterwards. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you right now in Jesus' name. We thank you for the Passover. We thank you that it points to the Lord Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ is our Passover lamb. Lord, we just herald the truth of Romans 5, 9 right now, which says we are justified by the blood of Christ. We are not justified by the birth of Christ. We are not justified by the teachings of Christ. We are justified by his blood. And you have promised there will be no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. But with the shedding of blood, there is forgiveness. Lord, we, like your people have always done, like the Israelites did, we rest under the blood of the lamb and we trust in you. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.